Phantomaniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and I am here to verify for you, the good people of the podcast verse, that the Groot 3-pack is real. For those of you that don't know or may not be as into the toy stuff as uh, some of us are, there have been pictures floating around of a Toys R Us exclusive Groot 3-pack from Hasbro, which has uh, the old Groot Build-A-Figure from a couple of years ago when the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie came out with a different head on it, a very different head on it, uh, and also Baby Groot in a pot, and what they are calling Baby Groot from the new movie which I think should be like toddler Groot or something because there's it's a little confusing when you say baby Groot. But anyway, and and this is uh toddler Groot. He is not in his spacesuit or anything. So this is not spacesuit Groot. This is baby Groot. But anyway, I found it at Toys R Us and it's weird because I found that a few of the figures from the new Guardians of the Galaxy wave and uh but there was only one Groot and that Groot had been once I got home, I realized it had been opened. Uh, the tape that that holds the sides closed had already been slit when I went to slit it. But the figure is intact; uh, nothing is missing, nothing is different, nothing is wrong with it. So uh, there's a mystery there. I wonder what the story is because I don't know how you would accidentally. And what I'm wondering is if somebody maybe ordered it online and then returned it to the store. And that's why they only had one of them. I, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is, but everything was there. It's the figure that it should be, and I just got lucky. Uh, I also picked up Angela because her, her and Yondu were the only ones that I want from that uh, wave. And because Yondu, I, the MCU stuff is kind of my focus with Marvel Legends now. And then the Angela, uh, anybody that I have tattooed on my body, uh, I will get a figure of them if it is a good figure and i've got angela tattooed on my a greg capullo a version of angela tattooed on my left arm that at this point in my life uh, may need some touching up because it's been there for about 20 years now not that it sees a lot of sun or anything but you know i want to talk about some upcoming phantom appearances I believe I have mentioned Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention sometime in the last few weeks. I want to update you on that. It is now being consolidated into Toy Lanta, which if you have listened to episode 16 of the Needless Things patron cast, you know that I mentioned uh, that maybe they'd want to consolidate that game a little bit because Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention is a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, so it is now... Toy Lanta, uh, Joe Lanta still exists and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention still exists, but this particular event is Toy Lanta, although if you go to Facebook, the event is still the full name. Uh, and if you go to the website, joelanta.org, you will find all of the information and everything else. And believe you me, I know how much trouble it is to change the name of a website, or at least, uh, for, for those of us who do not dabble in 
web things as a profession or a hobby that they particularly enjoy. And look, I know how absurd that is coming from a guy that puts out a podcast every week and has been running a website for, uh, what, nine years now, eight years, something like that. But I, I'm still not necessarily well-versed in messing around on the Internet. So anyway, JoeLanta.org is the place to go for all the information, and I will give you some of it right here and right now because maybe you're in your car and you can't look at JoeLanta.org. Maybe that's not convenient for you. So JoeLanta is happening next weekend, March 10th, 11th, and 12th. Uh, the 11th and 12th are the main days uh, it is still at the Marriott Century Center, 2000 Century Center Boulevard, Northeast Atlanta. So it is a nice central location for most of the metro Atlanta area. I really like that place. It's got plenty of room, uh, which, by the way, will be absolutely packed to the gills with toy sellers, toy customizers. Uh, customizers? Ah, this is the new element Customite, from which we shall make toys. Uh, Skeletor's new evil plan, which is admittedly a pretty shitty one. Uh, customizers uh, from all over the world. Absolutely packed. You guys, and when I say packed, I'm not talking about like you walk into a room and you're like, oh, my goodness, there are quite a few toy sellers in here. I'm talking about the halls and the rooms and every like inch of the uh, convention slash meeting area of this hotel is packed with toys everything you can think of from uh dolls to 80s toys to modern toys to 90s toys to model kits to custom toys just tons and tons i mean it's crazy but on top of that they have panels going all weekend long uh, mine is 2 p.m on sunday it's going to be a new type of toy stories panel we're doing something a little bit different where we're going to talk about how we played with our toys back in the day when we were kids uh did we mix brands? Did we mix sizes? Did we play inside? Did we play outside? Did we use the comics and television shows? Did we make up our own stuff? Uh, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be an interesting conversation, and uh, you will enjoy the panelists that are involved. So Sunday at 2 p.m., uh, March 12th, show up for that. And it's just, I, I love this convention, obviously, because I love toys, but also because it really has turned into something uh, that's so much more than just a toy show. And uh, for me to say just a toy show, you know it's a big deal. And plus, Saturday night, you will have a rock and roll show from Radio Cult. And shockingly, the Possum Kingdom Ramblers will also be in attendance, uh, playing th at various times throughout the day. And you can meet Ricky and Bambi, who are two absolutely wonderful people. They will have a table there. You can go hang out with them and talk about toys and uh, Ninja Turtles. Bring Bambi. Bring Bambi a Ninja Turtle. Or a Martian Manhunter. There's there's your uh, there's your way to get like pictures with Radio Cult and stuff and get in their good graces. Not that they really have bad graces, but uh, you you will definitely be uh, one of the the top shelf Radio Cult fans if you do that. So uh, Ninja Turtles and Martian Manhunters for Bambi and uh, for Ricky. I, I this is. Kind of a secret on the down low thing, but I think he'd be cool with it. Uh, Ricky, super into Polly Pockets. Bring that guy some Polly Pocket toys and you will have made his day. All right, moving on. Go check out jolanta.org. Find out all the details. Uh, it is next weekend and it is an awesome, awesome show. Uh, Friday night, March 10th. 
if you are if you have bought your admission uh then you can be there for the parachute drop and the parachute drop is awesome it's in the lobby of the hotel which is one of those weird sci-fi lobbies that just extends all the way up to the top of the building so you can run up to like the 20th floor or something and and just throw an action figure with a parachute uh, attached to it off and see what happens so that that is impressive to see uh, the parachute drop is awesome and also there are adult beverages so you know the combination of throwing toys and adult beverages you know that that's not problematic at all but it's always a good time so joelanta.org go check it out and i mention all this one because it's next week and two because today's guest is buddy finnethy who is uh, the originator of joelanta which is one of the two conventions that came together to form this year's Toylanta. So, uh, and Buddy is awesome. It's a great conversation. You're really going to enjoy it. But before we get to that, I have to talk about another Lanta, and that's my Lanta. Uh, I'm getting older, and now I have different nutritional needs. No, I'm just kidding. This is not for my Lanta. This is for Who Lanta. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I am currently in negotiations to do things at Hulanta. I can't get into specifics yet, uh, and I, I was somewhat hesitant to even mention it until I have something a little more concrete, but I'm thinking if the listeners of the Needless Things podcast maybe mention, boy, I sure would love to see Phantom Troublemaker and Needless Things at Hulanta, or hey, it would be really cool if the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show Show was at Hulanta and not just Dragon Con this year. Wouldn't that be a crazy blowout? Uh, you know, maybe that would be a good thing. I'm just saying, it, it would uh, it would help things along. But we are we are discussing uh, contracts are being passed back and forth. Uh, writers are being submitted. Uh, that sort of thing is going on. I would love to do the game show there. I would love to do Toy Stories there. I would love to do a live episode of the podcast just about Doctor Who there. Maybe I could reassemble the old ESW crew. I mean, I mean, granted, they, they're already assembled every other week without me, but you know, maybe I could get them all on the Needless Things podcast and we could talk Doctor Who a little bit. I think that would be interesting. Uh, although, I don't know that some of the things that I have to say would necessarily be popular with the Hulanta crowd, but uh, what are you going to do? And if you don't know, Hulanta uh, is is used to be TimeGate. They changed the name, I think, last year maybe, and uh, you know everybody's consolidating, everybody's adding Lanta to things uh, because we're all very proud to be here in Atlanta doing nerd stuff. All right, you guys. I think that covers everything. Let me let me pull out my little checklist here that I made before I started recording. Uh, Groot 3-pack, check. Jolanta at jolanta.org, check. And uh, Hulanta, which I, I do not have the site up in front of me, but I don't feel too bad about that since it's not a total definite thing. But if you Google Hulanta, I feel like it'll be in the top five results, so you should be able to figure that out yourself. All right, you guys. It is time to listen to our buddies, the Mystery Men. Play just a little bit of music, and I highly recommend you Google Mystery Men of Surf and check them out. Go to Facebook, like their Facebook page, uh, and enjoy just a little bit of the Mystery Men before we talk to our pal, Buddy Finnethy of Toylanta. <laughs>
right, Phantomaniacs, it is that time of year again, the Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention. Now, a couple of years in a row, we've had our pal Martin Jalad on the show, and he's told us about how, how these things came about, what he's into. But this year, we are talking to Buddy. Oh, boy, I've never said your name out loud. It's Finity. Finity. See, I was about to say Finity. I have people add syllables all the time, man, so just roll with it. I'll answer to just about anything. <laughs> well, now, now that we've gotten it out of the way, I can just call you buddy. There you go, man. Absolutely. Roll with it. Welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you, man. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I've uh, listened to the podcast many an occasion, and it's, uh, it's a great podcast. I mean, you're along the same lines as all of us. You know, you get addicted to the plastic, and uh, it becomes a, a part of your life. And that's and exactly right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, I think more than just artifacts of childhood has become a reflection of our culture at large. You know, it really is. So many more people uh, who pick up this stuff and and have made it part of their lifetime flight path. You know, well, and it's it is. You know, I look around my room down here. And this is a scrapbook of, of my life. It is, absolutely. You can remember times with it. You can remember what you were into. And it's amazing, you know, the things that you're hot for at one time. And then they, you know, five, seven years later, you look at it and like, eh, it, it, it's still a great toy, but uh, I'm not in that place anymore. You <laughs> or, know? Or, it's not, or it's not necessarily a great toy, and I don't, <laughs> and I don't you know, know what I was thinking at the time. Well, and then there's those things that you thought were lousy toys at the time, and it comes back, and it's like, holy smokes, there really was something so much cooler than I was getting yeah, out of yeah. that thing. I mean, I didn't like He-Man stuff at all when it first rolled out. I was, of course, I was a little neck deep in in my faux adulthood at the time. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, now that I am exposed to people who love it and they have you know, illuminated what it was about that toy, you can see the charm and you can see the work and you can see how it captured imagination. Uh, and, and it wasn't even a part of my childhood. You know? Even when I was a kid, uh, you know, I, I I loved the cartoon and some of the characters I thought were cool, but, I mean, when I was a kid, He-Man was not my thing. I had a few of them, but, you know, I was G.I. Joe and Star Wars. I, I really, my love for He-Man didn't start until the 2002 cartoon. And which was really well done. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, and before I've caught, we I've caught this. Yeah. Be- before we get too deep into modern times, uh, let's travel. Let's hop in the Wayback Machine. Oh man, it's comfy in this Wayback. Man, you got a plush <laughs> Wayback Machine. I've never seen a a, a Lucador a Lucador uh, Wayback Machine before. The purples. That's I like the plush velvet. It's I like cool. I like to take care of my guests. Man, uh, it's just like a limo. Look at this thing. It's awesome. Well, let's travel uh, back and visit Little Buddy. Little Buddy. Uh, Little Buddy was raised in uh, Possum Kingdom, South Carolina. And as the name connotates, not a whole lot going on there. <laughs> uh, beautiful, wonderful place to grow up in complete isolation, if that's your thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which it really wasn't my thing. I just didn't know it because I didn't know anything else. But uh, we were raised you know, fairly and uh, when you got a toy at Christmas, man, that was the thing. And um, one Christmas, I uh, I got uh, GI Joe, and it, knowing what I know about it now, it obviously was 
1971 or 72, and it was an air adventure. And I remember him as clear as I'm talking to you, man, that uh, he became my buddy. He was, we didn't get the whole run of anything. We got one toy, you know, right, and that right. was the toy. And uh, he and I tore it up, man. We were all over the joint. I'd bring him to school. I'd sneak him in in my little satchel or whatever and uh, sneak around being an insurgent, getting everybody to bring theirs to school so we can <laughs> play out in the, out in the playground. Uh, out in the country, you didn't have a lot going on. There, there were kids around, but not a lot of them had, uh, had extensive toys. Uh, but there was always some other kid that had just a little bit of G.I. Joe stuff. And you could bond in a sandbox over that, man. You Instantly. You, you were pals. Now, you had your proxies. Tell us, uh, tell us about <clears throat> this particular figure. Like, where... Where was he in the the original GI Joe line? What did he look like? What kind of what kind of gear did you have for this guy? Well, in the uh, mythos uh, in timeline of GI Joe, uh, you had the early military stuff, which was sixty four to sixty nine, and then it transitioned into an adventure theming uh, as a response to the Vietnam War. Sure, uh, no matter what petrochemical excuses they make, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, and he was the beginning of that adventure team line. And I really think it set the tone for uh, the imaginative exercise that G.I. Joe became. Uh, because adventure team wasn't constrained to the reality of equipment like uh, the military figures were. Uh, it was a fuzzhead. So this guy was uh, a redheaded fuzzhead. Usually the air adventurers came as a blonde, but I distinctly remember mine coming as a redhead. Nice. Uh, there were four colors of hair in the adventure team line. Uh, he had an orange jumpsuit, which mean it, it means you could find him when you thought you had completely lost him. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I had completely lost him on many an occasion. Uh, and uh, he would have come with a parachute, though mine did obviously not survive past Christmas Day. Um, so I was in the realm of a lot of homemade equipment. Uh, later on, when G.I. Joe resurfaced in my life, uh, the dedication to the, the vintage equipment and getting everything I could get came about. And uh, with that guy, you know, as I was an overweight, asthmatic kid, it sounds like a, uh, a script almost. There were a lot of... Uh, you know, kids that got dedicated to their toys because they were ill. I was uh, asthmatic, and so I would be constrained, you know, inside the house a lot when I'd have asthma attacks. Sure, sure. And he, man, he had adventures all over the world, no matter what state I was in. And uh, he was, he was, uh, he survived maybe about two years, you know, and which was really good for as rough as I was. And those those figures were built rock solid, brother. Their engineering uh, was genius because uh, for being elastic and plastic, that thing could take it all. Um, and I remember when he finally bit the dust, uh, when that last elastic gave, he got a military burial in the backyard. And then later on, I regretted it, and I couldn't find him. I couldn't remember where I buried him. He's still oh. in that yard in Possum Kingdom somewhere. Oh, man. In some little bad wooden casket that I made for him and, and shoved in the ground. And I searched and searched and searched because I thought, well, I could always tape it back together. But no. And um, then, you know, I'm, I moved on 
to the action figures of the moment, which would there was a lot of Mego. So I had the Planet oh, yeah, line, yeah. and then I, I had, uh, you know, my dad was a, a, an antiques dealer, which is another fancy way of saying a junk man. Uh, and he would come up with the damnedest things. And uh, so I ended up with a 1950s marks, you know, the, the 28 millimeter stuff that they did, uh, the French Foreign Legion and the Davy Crockett and the Fort Apache stuff. It was all used, but I didn't care. I was a kid. I was, I was going to tear it up anyway. So, uh, and, um, from Action Jackson, uh, and, um, Six Million Dollar Man, I know I had at least one of those guys. Now, if you weren't into Six Million Dollar Man in 1975, you were just a man out of luck. <laughs> you know, 76, 77, then Star Wars hit and it was like a nuclear bomb dropped on the toy landscape. Now, what did you personally think of, cause, because Star Wars was really the first major toy line to, to do the three point seven five inch scale, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there were some precursors to it. Uh, you know, I think Micronauts predated it in Japan. And I think the uh, Mego had Pocket Heroes. They did, but I think that may have been after. Was I'm it? Okay, sure. okay. I think it, or, or simultaneously with it. They jumped on things quick, man. Mego was like a, a little cutter boat in the water compared to, <laughs> to big destroyers trying to maneuver around, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And, and they were scrappy. They were like the disco equivalent of the toy, you know, well, they, they bought up all the licenses. It's very interesting because I feel like there've really only been two times in history when toy companies have had really just such a massive pop culture licensing presence. And at first it was Mego and now it's Funko. It is Funko. Funko just came out swinging hard, and they're branching out into all the different things that they're doing. I mean, they're not just the nobbler heads anymore. They're they're all all over the joint with trying different iterations of things. Well, and that's their I, success is astonishing. I, I admire the heck out of them because they will try. You know, they try they they tried their hand at the six inch scale super articulated figures, and while they were making you know really nice products, they just didn't they didn't quite hit the market. So. They, they moved on and tried the, you know, the reaction figures. They stuck with those for a while. Now they're trying something different. I mean, they're, they're not afraid to experiment and try different things with those hundreds of licenses that they have. Well, it's beautiful that they're a small enough company that they can make those decisions to jump quickly. I worked as a consultant for Hasbro and the National GI Joe Club for two or three years. And so I, I got exposed to the process, oh, you know, wow. the toy process on a corporate level. And it is uh, just like any large company. It's a chorus of many voices that demand equal time to express their view, which you give everybody in that cadre, uh, that large a group, uh, time to talk, you're going to slow yourself down. And that, where Mego, Mego was like a family operation. And those guys were, the sons were young and scrappy and they got flush with their first successes and they were like, well, if this worked now, let's do it again, you know? And they, they swung hard and Funko is swinging hard. I think that Sideshow, uh, when they first debuted, they debuted the Universal Monsters, I think, in Toys R Us and then they did the, um, 
bayonets and barbed wires to the Toys R Us. Yes. Uh, and they, they're, they were small and scrappy and they've gotten much larger since then, but, but they were able to assess the lack of response quickly and still had enough resource to pull back and go into other toy lines and a different tactic. So they, you know, paralleled with hot toys and, and have really adjusted themselves to a higher end. You know, we know what we can make, we know what we can sell, and we know the quality level we want to do it at. And it's, Funko has their level of sculpture too. It's crazy to me that I could, because I've got shelves of sideshow figures. Well, I've got the smaller plastic ones that they did yeah. for the Universal Monsters. Oh but yeah, they were beautiful. I've also got that, well, so beautiful that Diamond basically tried to recreate them, you know, <laughs> a, a decade and a half God, later, I which I, I love Diamond too. And they, they have gone above and beyond what Sideshow did in the realm of plastic. Uh, but then Sideshow's sixth scale figures, the, the clothed 12 inch stuff. I've got a, a ton of those, but you know, at the time I was buying them when they were like 30, 40 bucks each. No doubt. And, I bought this, I, I bought their whole universal monster line on clearance at oh. Toys R Us, and I thought, well, this is the only thing I'm ever going to see from these guys. I may as well get yeah, them. Yeah. I got them for dirt cheap, and I hated it for them because that's a double-edged sword. As toy collectors, we want to run out and we want to get things as cheap as possible. But in our doing that, we're actually cutting the throat of the people that are making the things we love. We actually discussed that on uh, our last episode, the Toy Fair episode, where you know it's just you've got to allocate your money certain ways – and if something is cool but just isn't in your budget, then, you know, you get it on clearance. And that's what's happening a lot with Marvel Legends right now. You know, they come out at 20 bucks a pop. And $20 for what is, in it, it, all it, honesty, a pretty basic six-inch figure yeah. Is, yeah, is a bit much. And, you know, especially when if you watch Amazon, most of them you can end up getting for... Eight to ten dollars. I know, which I think is actually the perfect price point for a six-inch figure. Yeah, I think. Well, I, these days, and and I understand. You know, I don't know how much of the cost of plastic is exaggeration and how much is real, but I'm comfortable paying about twelve bucks for a six-inch figure of of yeah. Marvel Legends quality. Uh. And, and, you know, it, it goes from there when you've got stuff like Mezco's 112 coming out. And, yeah, they're expensive, but they're the best action figures Man, I've ever bought in my life. Phenomenal. I saw the breakdown on Green Arrow a couple of days ago, and that thing is impressive. I mean, it's the first uh, 112 uh, figure that I've thought of. You know, I've passed on all the Mego repops and all the, um, the Dr. Mego uh, Toy Island kind of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, um, but that level of detail and and that harkens to my my love of detailing in the twelve inch figures uh, it is a parallel without without watering down. You know their 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 size is good because collectors hit the space wall so hard. Yes, yes. I mean I'm constantly struggling with. You know, my dedication to a certain thing, and if I if I hit the space wall, then I've got to make some hard decisions, uh, and I can't add more rooms on. The wife's got me on lockdown. 
<laughs> I know, I know said, we've already goes. redone one whole house. You're not doing it again. <laughs> well, and I wonder because because I know collectors that are buying things like the quarter scale NACA figures and even yeah. the Jacks, the big 36 inch figures, which I, I got to admit I do have one or two of those sitting around that I couldn't resist. But yeah. to collect, you know, to collect those, my gosh, where are you putting those things? Well, that's the advantage. I, I design restaurants for a living, and I, I design environments for a living. And so now I figure out ways to sneak them into my restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, i got an entire toy collection in one of the mellow mushrooms I designed down in College Park, and uh, I'm about to have to go down and get it out before anybody realizes exactly what all that's worth. <laughs> but it's uh, how do collectors live with their collections and do it in a way that doesn't defeat the uh, purpose of showing it off to people, that they get the the excitement and they get the the specialness of what you're trying to show them. Because I, I do think that's a final frontier with collectors. Uh, how do you show what you have in a way that shows off what it is about it that you love to someone who's not in it? Yeah, so yeah. it's something Martin is, a, Martin July has been on your shows a couple of times, is a genius at uh, kind of figuring out display aesthetic in a collection. So we've gone in several times to our members and, and just helped them rearrange because a lot of time it's not what you have, it's, it's how you have it. Yes. And, um, and which makes him one of the most perfect people to help us on the museum project is that he has an eye for how to show this thing in a dignified way that highlights it. And it, it really is the final frontier for collectors. Uh, if you go on YouTube, you'll see hundreds of videos of hot toys and sideshow collectors that have whole rooms that look like museums. It's amazing at, at the lengths they will go to to display those things because the price is so high, you better dang well. Yeah, make a serious stab at showing it off nicely. Yeah, you can't just have them jammed on a on a uh, Sears stack of shelf. <laughs> right, absolutely. I mean, you get the uh, you get the uh, the Marty McFly uh, DeLorean. My God, holy smokes, brother! You you've dropped a dime on that thing. You got to uplight that thing and put it on a shelf that's nice and show it off. But it really is it's it's a a definite struggle for any collector when you hit that space wall you you have got to you've got to have an honest talk with yourself about what what really is important and 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 you soon find out that it's not necessarily keeping everything in a box yeah i don't uh i most everything that i own is open uh i I definitely go the museum route i take a lot of pride in how i've got everything sort of organized categorized uh, I worked in retail for the greater portion of my working life, so yeah. my 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 whole downstairs where all the toys are, it's basically merchandised. <laughs> That's phenomenal, man! I am proud of you. That is awesome. It it takes that kind of thought frame for any collector of anything. I mean, I collect tiki stuff. I'm sure you've seen pictures of my yes. studio. It's yes. all tiki, uh, and I, I have to be very careful about what I buy because you you go over into a realm of crazy cat lady. <laughs> you don't, you know, if you don't watch out what you're, how, what you're doing and how you're doing it. Well, and, and you've also got to look at, does this really have a place in my collection? 
Right. Which is something I'm trying to consider more because back, you know, back before I, I had family responsibilities and, and, you know, whatever else, I would kind of buy just any old thing that interested me. Mm-hmm. And now I'm really trying to be conscious of what, where is this going to be five years from now? Am I going right. to end up sticking it in a box somewhere or is it going to still be out and part of my, you know, displayed stuff? Mm-hmm. And if it's something that I don't know for sure has a place, then I, I don't get it anymore. And I think that's the, the perfect way to look at it because, I mean, any object in your life needs to speak to your life. Yes. And it needs to energize your life. Your environment, your home should make you feel energized. It should make you feel like you are connected to yourself, you know, in a lot of ways. And it should convey the art of curation. Because The art of curation, a lot of people think curator, they think museum. That's not really what curation means. Curation is the art of portraying the taste of the person that's instigating it through the collection. If you, some people think they're not artists, but your collection portrays you. Oh, for sure. And it absolutely uh, is imperative that somebody asks themselves questions like, what does this mean to me, and does it energize me, and does it take me to another place, and do I look like, you know, I need some butterfly nets over me uh, <laughs> to have this thing? But... Uh, there are people that can collect just junk and make it look fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it, and, and they're, the fact that it energizes them, when somebody else comes into your environment, it's going to energize them if it's done right. Well, you know? here's, here's a good example of, uh, speaking of per, sort of personal energy as portrayed through your collection, uh, you know, you, you should, when you're in the middle of it all, mm-hmm. You should kind of be at peace to a certain extent. You should look around and just be like, this is all me. And a good example of something that wasn't, uh, and look, I love Ghostbusters. I love Diamond Select Toys. Yeah. But I was not happy with their Ghostbusters figures. Right. And that's not to say that they're bad. They just weren't what I wanted. You know what I mean? Right. Like, they're still good toys, and plenty of people, I'm sure, love them. But for me, there were just little things that that just I wasn't happy with, and I, you know, I bought all four of the guys. I, I got right. I got about six of the figures, and they were sitting in a corner of the room. And every time I was in the room, I was just like, "This doesn't belong. I'm right. not I'm not happy with this. This is throwing everything off." And I and I sold them off because they just weren't you know they weren't fitting in. Absolutely, it's like a bad chord in a song. Yes. Yes, that's exactly and, right. And it and you you have to pay attention to the nuanced notes. Sometimes it's just one little bum note in the corner, and and it throws the rhythm of the entire thing off. And it's it's very interesting to see the lengths people will go to kind of rationalize something that's not working for them, but they'll well, they'll they'll keep shoving. It <laughs> is well, and it is though because we you know the my certainly my collection is everything pop culture that I love. Yeah. And when you only have, like when a license only has certain figures or only has certain things available, there is a balance there as to like, how much do I love 
this character or this franchise versus how good is this toy? Like, where does it meet in the middle? Because I've got a number of Marvel Legends right. that the figures aren't the best. Like Forge, for example, from the X-Men. Right. Yeah. He's one of my favorite X-Men characters. His his Marvel Legends figure is not great, but there's no other Forge out there. So I've either got to not have Forge <laughs> or just deal. Or settle. Yeah, settle. And, and that one... My character love outweighs my dissatisfaction right, with the figure. Right. You know what I mean? Well, and that's where the customizer comes in. Oh, because, I, I, I used mean, to travel that road. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it doesn't have to be you doing the customizing. Yeah, yeah. The, the art of customizing is taking a lousy toy and making a fantastic piece of art out of it. And there's so many great um, paint repainters out there, sculptors, and, you know, not terribly expensive a lot of times these guys are doing it out of love and that's what we really encourage joanna is is the art of of expression through toy and the the customizer is the key linchpin i had an hour-long conversation with the customizer this morning where you know they're coming out with we're in a golden age right now where technology and pop culture and uh, toys are intersecting. People can make things that look as professional as anything any company is putting out. They can print their own figures. They can digitally create their own packaging. They can make uh, something that is so uniquely them that uh, it is completely geared towards their lifestyle. Yes. You know, and uh, the first cat that I was truly aware of that came out swinging was a guy named Charlie Flat. Oh, did, yes. Um, a lot of re- uh, reconditioning and, and eventually got into just completely new figures that, that Charlie Flat was, and I don't know whatever happened to him. I mean, he was a, a blazing star, and then I, I don't know what happened with him. But he inspired uh, a lot of people in the Mego realm with the lengths he went to to make something lousy extraordinary. I am and that's, uh, staring directly across the room at my Flat World Dracula, which is still my favorite uh, Dracula, Bela Lugosi Dracula figure. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and it's okay. an incredible figure, man. I mean, th- we're talking, this is near the quality of what Mezco's doing with the 112 Collective, but back in 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, bare skins and bone knives, man. I yeah. mean, the, the, the technology available, the resin technology today, I mean, we've done quantum leaps in the ability to reproduce and to new sculpt. And uh, even if somebody's not a sculptor, anybody can get anything 3D scanned. Yes. And you can have a, a printout made of it, repop that in resins. Uh, and people are like, well, you know, it's easy for you to say you have access to all this. Everybody has access to this stuff. And, uh, that's where we want people to, to just gear up and learn a few things and realize that it's not a solo thing where you have to be a renaissance man to know every aspect of something that it's almost plug and play the ability for you to generate new things. And come out swinging. Add Joe Lana. You'll see a lot of cats that put a lot of hours into the art of customization. Uh, limited release figures. We've got cats doing 
22 of a figure. We've got cats doing 100 of a figure. We've got cats that are doing open-ended editions of a figure. And these are things that they generated in the realm that they love, you know. And that love is what went out of a lot of toy companies, or you wouldn't have gotten those kind of lousy sculpts that uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago there was a dearth of of just terrible, not even trying kind of sculpts. Yeah. Uh, and then Hot Toys and Sideshow came in and threw the gauntlet down. And now, you know, people will not settle for bad art in toys anymore. I just don't see it. You know, and that's something the toy companies are having to come to grips with, with the success of how many people on Etsy and how many people on Kickstarter and how many people with these you know, uh, Facebook fan clubs almost. And you get guys like Elvis 1976 and cats like that who can make as many of something as they want to and they're going to sell all day long uh, because their their fingers on a pulse. And, and part of that pulse is the expectations of quality that people really have now in toys. Well, and I've talked a lot about licensed stuff, and, and honestly, most of what I collect is, is some franchise or another, but there is definitely an explosion over the last couple of years of original ideas in toys from these custom toy makers or smaller uh, operations that are just doing original, wild, cool characters. That Absolutely, you're not going to see from guys. yeah, yeah, and nobody from from Hasbro or Mattel or, or anywhere is going to touch anything like this because they're so afraid of anything that doesn't have a pre-existing television show or comic book or movie right. or whatever attached to it. They have to have a guarantee, or they're not going to do it. Which is why I'm so impressed with Super Seven, g- kind of going out on a limb with their oh, yeah. the worst. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, guys like Super Seven and the Four Horsemen throwing out things that they just like to do. They, yes. They're guys that work with all the majors, and yet they still have something that they want to say on a limited level. Yeah. And, and they've managed to work the system that is in place now where they know exactly how many to produce. They're only playing to the, to the fans that really want to support that. Uh, so is, there really isn't a risk. But a Hasbro or a Mattel or somebody like that, they just can't get that micro with with their research. Yeah, they. I mean, they have to do big numbers to justify, right. you know, production of even one figure. Yeah, and you look back at Hasbro, man. Hasbro started. Merrill Hassenfeld started that company doing pencil cases. You know, it was during their a one-man operation on many an occasion in his early years. And then they started putting out, you know, very primitive toys. Uh, and Hasbro didn't make a transition until G.I. Joe. I mean, it didn't become that big of a thing. And only when Real American Hero hit did it start becoming this conglomerate that it is. And I think it, it really has a lot to do with a first generation of any company passing the torch. Sure, yeah. And... What you have here are basically customizers that are the equal to those small companies when they started. So, so with much better technology. Going back to that first Joe that you had. Yeah. What, I mean, he, he obviously was a very important touchstone in your life. At what point 
do do you when you look back at what point do you recognize was the start of you being a collector? Well, my collecting route was a little bit different than everybody else uh, because uh, you know I had my childhood Joes and I put things away. And, uh, you know, I followed the Grateful Dead for a long time, and I, I uh, lived a very uh, challenging lifestyle because uh, a little bit about myself, I, I'm an artist. Um, I became evolved into a designer uh, and became very brand-oriented. I did work for Frito-Lay and Coca-Cola did work with um, Relics Magazine, which was the Grateful Dead's magazine back in the 80s. It has since gone on to evolve into a jam band magazine. Uh, and have always been on the brand side of things. Well, the side effect for being in what is the rock and roll lifestyle is the rock and roll lifestyle. Hey, so sure. I got a little caught up, um, very caught up, uh, and uh, had to come to, when I was in my late 20s, I came to the decision that I needed to tighten up on myself and uh, reassess where I derailed from who I thought I was, you know. And uh, at that time, <clears throat> when I was newly sober, um, I, uh, I was kind of lost, you know. And I remembered back to my childhood and I, I thought about when was the last time I had a really firm view of who I was and what I loved about the world and what made me ha happiest because I had pursued what I thought was going to make me happy and had not made me happy and uh, and one day I was uh, out driving around and there was a side of the road yard sale and I got out and there was this G.I. Joe didn't have his uh, arms from the elbow down, didn't have his legs from the knees down, and he was covered completely in black paint. <laughs> but I hadn't held a G.I. Joe in God knows how many years at that point. Mm -hmm. I had never gotten into the three and three quarter inch, though I appreciated it as a torchbearer. Uh, but I got that G.I. Joe, and it must have been 88, 89 maybe, uh, and and so I went on a quest to rehabilitate him. It was sort of a metaphor, you know. And so I started looking for parts. And back then, the Internet was not cooking hard. Um, and I sniffed around and, and left. I've had business cards printed up. I was in marketing, so what am I going to do? I'm going to market. Uh, I had business cards printed up, postcards printed up, and uh, started meeting people in the local Atlanta G.I. Joe scene, Lanny Latham, uh, who now works for the National G.I. Joe Club, uh, was a local collector here. Uh, and he, you know, just enlightened me to a whole world of collectors. And even though the Internet wasn't a major player in that Jungle Telegraph at the time, uh, we started getting together. You know, we started making our own, you know, relative Internet. Sure. Uh, and I was able to, to find out what the proper way to take this guy back to his right place was. And he was a, a, a really early G.I. Joe. It was probably year one production. 
uh, and he needed everything. And so I flawlessly got the paint off of him, flawlessly uh, replaced the, the lens properly, got the right uniform for him, got everything between months. Back then, you thought all this stuff was gone. No, there was no eBay yet. You thought it was all gone. You thought no, no, nobody could possibly have any of these pieces. Yeah, how uh, wild is it to think now of all of those sort of wilderness years prior to the Internet that all of this stuff that we see at places like Jolanta was all out there. We just, nobody, like the people that had it just didn't know what to do with it. It was like frozen in an iceberg, man. It was stuck in it was boxes. Like it was Captain stuck in America. <laughs> it was, absolutely. Joe was Captain America. And, uh, and, and then when the, the, the floodgates opened, and eBay was the floodgates opening. Yes. Things came out that people thought there were no examples of. And then it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and things were coming from other countries. And, um, so I finally, uh, you know, scraped the money together to go to the first uh, National G.I. Joe show that I went to, uh, which was, I don't know, 94, probably, 95, uh, and met some of the preeminent collectors from around the world who are still some of my best friends because they had all wandered the wilderness, too. You know, they had yeah. spent those years lost. And what we found, that part of me that needed reconnecting, not just with myself, I needed to reconnect with like souls. And that's what I found. I found these like souls. I found cats that got where I was coming from. This was not the world I signed up for. This was not the, the, the this isolation that people give each other was not the gig that we were in it for. We wanted that sandbox connection we were talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's what I got. I got something that literally helped save my life. And people think that toy collecting is silly. Not as many now, though. We've had a paradigm shift in our culture. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not. It is symbolic of a mindset of people that want to connect in a positive way with other people. They want to share something that they're excited about. And... That excitement from the first G.I. Joe convention that I went to, and I was working with Brian Savage to, to, in whatever way I could. First, it was just as a volunteer, and then I went on to help uh, consult on some of the collector's editions and, and worked with him on the National Club on, on several projects and, and interfaced with the Hasbro folks. And it was such a big deal that I knew there were a lot of collectors that were never going to scrape together the money to go to these huge conventions because you're thousands of dollars in the hole just walking in the door, you know. And what what is the everyday cat that's got five kids in North Georgia and it's a big deal just to come to Atlanta? They're not going to go to, you know, L.A. or, or Colorado or, you know, New York to a, a big convention. Right. But they want that kind of connective experience. Well, that nothing, even, even once the internet did start to facilitate, you know, communication between collectors and trading and whatever else, that still doesn't replace that face to face conversation, that sharing of 
hey, check this out, and actually handing someone a cool toy that you dig. Tactile experience. Yes, exactly. Tactile experience. If you have the artifact that you, if you're talking about it on the internet, there is always going to be the fourth wall. It's always going to stand between you. But when you're together, when you're communing, you know, you are communicating. It's the same thing. And, uh, and so after a couple of three years of going to the national conventions, I had friends here that looked at that experience as some kind of a, an epiphanal thing. And it's, it's not like, you know, golden gates open up and there's a flood of light and, you know, there's a chorus of, of, you know, large women singing in the background. It's just guys that want to connect with each other about this passionate love. And I thought that everybody should have that experience. And I had been to a lot of toy shows, but toy shows, you've been to them. They're in a YMCA gym and they smell like socks a lot of times. And and you go in and you don't get that convention feeling, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's more like a swap meet than, than a communal type thing. Right. Around 2000. Me and some of my pals got together, uh, and we were like, well, you know, it would be great if we could have that experience, but have it here to show people what it's like, that you don't have to go broke to do it, that it's just a willingness. And and so we put on, I scraped together, you know, some money to, to rent a hotel ballroom and invited some of those cats I knew from the national conventions out and this feeling of this social outreach, you know, this, this feeling of kind of you're one of us. Welcome to the island of misfit toys, my friend. Here's the, uh, you know, the, the one legged chicken doll over in the corner <laughs> because everybody right. was digging it. And that was to me was even better than the experiences I'd had before because we weren't breaking anybody's bank. We were there for the right reasons. And it it really did um, galvanize to me that this thing was missing from the entire scene. And if, if collecting toys, and more importantly, the people that I met collecting toys saved my life then what what impact could it have on somebody else you know and we got to the point here where we literally meet weekly you've been to our meetings those are the cats i would fight and die for yeah those are I, i didn't until i had gone to one i didn't understand uh the the powerful sense of sort of family and community that you guys really do have with with between the two shows which i i want to talk about a little bit about how because you're when you started this what were you calling it uh we called it Lana at first okay so you're the the your half of it or your side of it or whatever has been Lanta from the start Absolutely. Well, it, it's an evolution. It's like a tree that's growing. You have the ring. You have the core. Sure. Joanna was our core. Um, after Cody passed, and, and Martin has talked about this on your 
on your podcast before and go back and listen to you guys had a great time on those shows. They were fantastic. Yeah. Um, when Cody passed away, um, it was important to all of us in our group. And I owned Joe at that point. Uh, it was important to all of us that we honor him and the best way to honor him is to perpetuate that kind of love of toys. He had a love of all toys, you know, and he used toys as a communication tool at, towards the end of his life. Uh, and it was important to all of us that, that this sense of community and acceptance, that healing aspect of it, that it perpetuated in a larger format. And so I donated the show to the Cody Lane, we created the Cody Lane organization, the Cody Lane Foundation, to with the goal of creating an experiential learning museum to use storytelling with toys or to use toys as the metaphor, but it's simply to teach people to tell stories in whatever way they can. Movies, writing, art, diorama. The art of the diorama has become such an important part of us, and we have the most amazing diorama artists. Steve Bug, Mike Gardner do our show uh, dioramas. I'll put them up against any sculptor in the world, and I deal with artists every day designing environments. They're as good as anybody on the planet. And the stories that they're able to tell, beginning, middle, and end, in one shot, is genius. And uh, that Cody used storytelling uh, with his toys as a communication medium. And this is an art form based on an art form with a really much broader uh, import than, than people can even grasp right now. Well, and I do want to touch on that because you, you mentioned before the, the customizers being at uh, Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention. And I want to mention for the listeners, when you go uh, next weekend, you will see these dioramas that Buddy's talking about. You will see custom figures on display. You, it, it's like it's almost like a traveling art show. It is where these creators from all over bring these things that they've put their blood, sweat, and tears into to show off to the public, and and you, we get to see toys that you'll never see anywhere else because they're straight out of the minds of the creators that come to Joanta. Absolutely. And they come from all over the world. We've got our friend Felipe is coming from Brazil for the first time this year. And Felipe is walking in a rock star because this guy is a tailor. Uh, you just, you can't put anything up against him. We have our friend Kathy Ellis. She's a tailor as well. Just beautiful sets for Cotswold collectibles. And Cotswold is uh, a manufacturer. They sell uh, Sideshow and Hot Toys as well. But Cotswold has been an amazing supporter of Joe Lanham. Well, they've, level, been working, you know, they've been working with you guys for quite some time. How did that relationship get started? Um, I was friends with um, Tina, who owns Cotswold, from uh, from the National GI Joe scene, and then uh, Greg Brown, who is their head of marketing and basically their um, creative guru now, 
was a customizer that I knew, and I was a big advocate for him working for Tina when she was looking for some folks. And um, and that relationship has it started off as friendships, and then as Joanna has picked up steam, they've been so amazingly supportive and so incredible to us in helping us with resources and helping us with ideas. I mean, sometimes you'll get you can't see things because you're looking right at them, and it takes a little bit of an outside view to help you out. And uh, Greg is incredible with uh, with you know, taking a rock out from in front of my face sometimes when I'm stuck on a problem. Sure, and, sure. And they are, they're, they're phenomenal people, but there are people like that all through this show that I've known for now, you know, well over two decades in some cases, um, that the creativity is, is escalating because the customizers are feeding on each other. The, we've been preaching to them for years Okay, so this huge explosion in one six scale and the stuff you want is not out there anymore on a retail basis. Pick up the torch and run with it. You can do it. And, uh, you know, all these years of us saying that, I'm not saying that we're responsible for people doing it all over the planet, but I know in our circles that we've been a huge impetus and a huge advocate for people to to try outside of their skill set. Well, and that's what impressed me the most uh, a couple of years ago in the diorama room. I was looking at, or actually, you know what? It might have been last year. Uh, there was a massive city type thing, like it was a city street uh, done by Mike Gardner. Yeah. And I, w- I was looking at it and just eyes agog. And he comes over and he starts explaining stuff to me. Like, these guys are not covetous of their skills at all. They want to share. No, man. They want to help people create and find new ways to do things. And like you said, uh, push the boundaries of your personal skill levels. Absolutely. And there, I'm a firm believer that creativity begets creativity. That it's a muscle in everybody's brain that can be worked. And a lot of times, it's just getting past the first step. You know, lose that fear of the first step. Do not be afraid of failure. You're not going to be great at everything. And you're especially not going to be great if you don't do it. So to have great ideas and never act on them is nothing. But to have great ideas and to try, that's something. Well, and that's the only way to get anywhere. I mean, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna fail a dozen times before you get it exactly right. But you're gonna learn so much. You don't learn from getting things right. You learn from getting things wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the thing you think was wrong is a, an amazing thing. Uh, well, it can, a be a, it can be a pathway to a better way to do things. Absolutely. Or, or it helps you learn with a future project that may yeah. not even have anything to do with what you're doing right now. Exactly. Every, and- every failure is a new skill set. <laughs> It's a, you know, kismet is an incredible is an incredible thing to happen. Yeah, you know, accidental discoveries are amazing. You know, I've watched people do resins for years, and it seemed like the biggest mystery on the planet to me. And then, uh, you know, one day somebody was just messing around with some glue. I thought it was glue. It was the two part poly resin, mm-hmm. and poured it onto something, and it took the exact shape. And I was like, well, that's awesome. You know, that you just made it look simple. And he said, it is simple. You just made it too big in your head. Yeah. And and 
when people walk in and somebody like Mike walks over and they share that knowledge and they, more importantly, share that it's not a big deal to get started is incredible. And Steve Bug, if, if you haven't talked to Steve to any length, you should. The guy is a history book walking, uh, and a, a detail artist. I mean, if he's building something, he knows about it. And he will share like nobody's business. These guys have opened my eyes up to so many things that literally affected my day-to-day job. When I started Joanna, I wasn't in interior design yet. And... Uh, and the fact that we could build these things in miniature and it didn't cost $2 million to do it, you can play around with how anything can be. So that's part of our message with kids. If they can learn to build a model of something, they can learn to build the real dang thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's taking that fear away from a kid because I was raised dirt poor. I had no pathway that at, that I thought I had, but I was in love with storytelling. You know, I was in love with comic books. I was in love with animation. I was in love with movies. I was in love with what has become our pop culture society, which in calling it pop culture is almost a misnomer because it has become the culture. And, uh, and I didn't know that all those things were teaching me communication and teaching me storytelling. And allowing me to get over traumas that I had through catharsis. You know, it really is, these dioramas are cathartic, uh, and you're telling this intense story, and, uh, mics are very, um, pop culture oriented, Steve's are very history oriented, uh, but they're not the only dioramas there. There are dozens of smaller dioramas. Well, that's what I love is the, the range of what you have, everything from a single small building or setting to a massive, you know, Tatooine. I do want to talk about this year's Joe Lanta. Absolutely. Uh, to, to wind this thing down. Sure. Uh, so you, you guys have every single year has been a little bigger than the last year. And, and I would yeah. say, you, I mean, at this point, it's, it is a full-blown convention. I feel like you guys have achieved, uh, at least a part of what you've set out to achieve. Uh, what can you tell me about what's happening this year? Well, this year we've got a new track, uh, which is the Botlana track. It's a Transformers-oriented, um, part of the show, uh, that Rob Springer and, uh, those guys over at the Cybertron, uh, podcast uh, all help to kind of get together on. Um, so that's a new emphasis for us this year. But with uh, Joanna and uh, this year's changes, are, is, evolution is a better word because they're not changes. Um, we have the core Joanna uh, that is always going to be our, our backbone. Um, the outreach is to other folks that don't let the, not let the Joanna moniker get in the way of the fact that it is a toy and creator-based convention. Um, you have massive dealer rooms. We've got more dealers coming this year than we've ever had. We've literally maxed out every inch of space in the place. And um, we have um, a lot of seminars that are happening uh, where experts in their toy field 
are going to be educating people on things. And um, we have a Johnny West seminar. We have a Super Joe seminar. We have the um, the we have special guests like Derek Yaniger. We have Larry Hama. Larry's a howl. If any of you real American Euro collectors out there haven't met Larry, you should. He's a great guy. He's very giving of his time and connectivity with collectors. Uh, and get him to tell you about the time he was on MASH. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my uh, favorite panels I've ever run uh, at DragonCon last year, we did a Larry Hama panel. And, I mean, it, not only is he entertaining, but, I mean, it was powerful. Uh, he, you know, he talked about World War II and just the the experiences of, you know, how much he loves this country Despite some of the not great things about it, I guess. Right. Uh, he, right. He's a tremendous speaker. Yeah, and he has lived a life broader than just creating Real American Hero. Yes. I mean, he has been an actor. He has been a guy who's been with some of the greatest storytellers in our lifetimes. Uh, Marvel in the 70s and 80s. Uh, those some of those guys have gone on to be heavy hitters. Well, those, I and mean, those were the glory days of Marvel, in my opinion. I think so too. I mean, nothing will ever surmount the Dark Phoenix saga. You know, um, you'll never uh, get past what happened with the Hulk's evolution from a dead character to to this vibrant, can be anything kind of guy. That they they've done everything with the Hulk. Spider-Man's reinventions several times, you know, just the impact that Marvel has had on the culture at large, and the movies are just now tapping into that. Um, so Larry, you know, he lived in that maelstrom. He, you know, hung out with Bernie Wrights, and he hung out with Michael Golden, he hung out with John Byrne, he hung out with these cats that were the giants. Uh, and he was right there toe to toe, a giant, and he is still alive and still loves collectors. He, it's not like he's getting rich doing Joe Lana. He comes down here because he genuinely enjoys the fans and loves to see the impact of what he did. And he's still a great creator. He's got new properties coming out to this day. Well, and there's, um, there's actually a new Bucky O'Hare toy line coming out too. You're kidding me. I am not kidding you. Uh, boss, <laughs> boss fight studio, cause Bucky O'Hare is one of Larry Hama's, like, that's what, that's the kind of stuff he wanted to do. He was yeah. draw little furry animals. He's a serious guy with a streak of the ridiculous. And, and that's uh, what I find just endearing about Yeah, bo- boss fight studios, one of the, one of the big online, uh, I guess creators are, uh, they're doing a new Bucky O'Hare line. That's <laughs> it's a hairline. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Hopefully, as long will, as it's not a receding. Yes, hopefully hairline. it will not be receding. So yeah, uh, uh, Larry's got his panel uh, eleven a.m. on Sunday. And what when is your panel? Your panel is on uh, favorite My, childhood toys, right? Mine is two p.m. on Sunday. And this year, I'm doing something a little different with Toy Stories. Yeah. Uh, rather than bringing a specific toy, we're going to be talking about how we played with toys. 
Ah, uh, yes, the old M80 stories. Yeah, well, <laughs> whether we mixed toy lines, uh, inside or outside, did we follow cartoons, comic books, or whatever, just make our own thing up, just a, a general conversation about how everybody, because everybody did a little bit differently. I think that'll be Absolutely. an interesting discussion. Absolutely. Well, you know, to me, G.I. Joe was Johnny Quest. You know, Race Bannon was G.I. Sure, sure, absolutely. And that is absolutely, you know, that interconnectivity between the toys and, and what was going around. That's phenomenal. I said, that'll be a great panel. We got, um, we've got Mike Gardner doing a, a um, Walking Dead panel with Mel Larch. Uh, our good friend Rudy Panucci and Mel Larch come down from uh, Virginia, West Virginia, to uh, join us every year. She's a huge uh, Walking Dead fanatic. Knows it inside and out. Knows the people that are that are doing it. And, you know the some. Of, she's met a lot of the actors, a lot of the people involved with it, and uh, she has a genuine passion for Walking Dead, as does Mike. And you know nobody's diorama more zombies on this planet than Mike Gardner. <laughs> that guy has done as many zombies as The Walking Dead has. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, we've got uh, Collecting Mego and Challenges of Vintage Collecting with the Retro Blasting folks. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, we even have a panel on Super Joe, which is the absolute redhead stepchild of G.I. Joe. Yeah, I don't even know a thing about Super Joe, so I'm really curious to see that. It's been blocked from collective consciousness. I think it's been squashed like a, you know, a bad, bad memory. See, that's my favorite kind of stuff. <laughs> and then our pals from uh, the ESO Network are presenting uh, the Mego panel. Yeah, that's going to be great because Mego, and, and we were talking about Mego a few minutes ago, Mego changed the landscape. They really brought pop culture into toys, getting it ready for Star Wars. I think they made the path easier for Star Wars. And then Star Wars, the nuclear bomb that changed the entire, you know, planet. Yeah. And it is, um, it's nice to see how one thing fed into another. And I think that's where these panels are so great is you can see connectivities you won't get from just information on a page. And a lot of it is, is almost legend. You know, you don't, uh, you don't get some of the nuances of it until you're talking with collectors that have lived and breathed this stuff. Well, and that's so, why I love doing the panels is because no book, no documentary, no behind-the-scenes feature is going to give you other people's personal experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, they, you know, there are experiences they've had that will not be written down. Yes. You know, that's that's legend, man. Uh We've got great artists joining us. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Derek Yaniger is going to be there. Derek worked on Transformers. Um, but Derek is also one of the best pop artists yes. that Atlanta's ever produced. I mean, the guy has a mid-century modern aesthetic that rivals Shag. And Shag is the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in that room. And uh, Derek is, uh, you know... Uh, I'm a bashed toy guy. Uh, and uh, I'm hoping that Larry Selman will join us. I'm not exactly sure if he is. Larry did a lot of the box art for um, the um, G.I. Joe uh, late 90s run of the 12-inch figures. And he is a fine photorealist military painter who is just amazing in his dedication to detail. We have Radio Cult 
joining us again with yes. our uh, Possum Kingdom Ramblers iteration. And uh, you might even get me up there with them a little bit. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, the Possum Kingdom Ramblers have their second album coming out. The first one sold out. Uh, and so uh, I think this will be the first chance a lot of people will get to hear some of the new material. Ricky and Bambi from Radio Cult are some of my favorite people on this planet. And, and once you have bathed in her energy and his humor, you're never the same. <laughs> well, I, I thank goodness for Ricky's presence because two years in a row now, he's helped out my panel immensely. Uh, the guy he, is a genius at stuff. He, play, he plays the slub, but that guy knows his stuff, man. He, he, has he and I... We, if we sat down to record, because I interviewed him and Bambi for the show, but if just me and Ricky sat down to record, uh, it, it would take several days, I think. And, it would. And would it be would. near unlistenable. <laughs> and he is so smooth, because if you get it wrong, he'll lead you back, but you won't even know he led you to the yeah, right yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, that, that man knows his stuff. He is. He's corrected me many times so genteely, I didn't even know I was had. It's like being worked over by a carnival barker. So, in addition to the programming, in addition to the music, in addition to the artists, you've got to remember the core of this is still rooms and rooms of not just the custom toys that we were talking about earlier, but vintage toys. Vintage uh, toys. But which, at this point, vintage toys encompasses a lot. It does. It encompasses a 50-year history and, you know, with the vibrant now of toy collecting in it as well. And that's the beauty of the customizers and the new stuff and the vintage stuff all being together is that you get to see this totality and you get to make connections of possibilities, you know, when you when you step back and see the shape of the entire beast. And, and these people all share the love. You know, they all share the love. The vendors, our dealers are incredible. You know, they they are passionate collectors almost to the man and woman. And they love this. There's so many other things they could be doing to make money, you know, for the same energy and possibly more money. Uh, and so there has to be a core of love in it. Our, our friend Ryan up at Federation Toys in Greenville, South Carolina, a passionate toy guy and a passionate dealer. He took that passion. And opened the shop up. up Is this Ryan Lansden? Uh, Ryan, uh, I don't remember his last name. Ryan is... uh, Does he customize and... No, I think that's a different guy. Okay, that's a different guy. But Ryan, uh, if if anybody wants to, they can check out Federation Toys on Facebook. Uh, Ryan is uh, a guy who, you know, changed his life over toys. And has expanded his, um, has expanded the shop, but also expanded what he's about with it. Uh, and has become a linchpin in the Greenville, in the upstate area of collectors. Uh, everybody knows he's there. They know they can come and, and commune. And that's the kind of stuff we want to see happen. We want to see it seed out. Atlanta should be in the South, should be bigger pop-culturally than we are. I think we're blessed I, with good weather, and that probably kept it from happening. 
um, in the Northeast, <laughs> you know, in colder climates where you're indoors six months out of the year, you collected a lot more things. But here is people with passion that are going to carry it. It's not geography or weather that that infects people with the, with the love of these artifacts. It's it's the love of uh, the observation and the pop culture landscape that that I think will carry the day here in the South. And, and Joe Lanner's growth has been slow up until now, but the last two years we've had exponential growth, and we think we're on the precipice of, of getting even bigger. So we're tightening up our structure as far as how do we still keep this feeling going if it gets bigger. And it's not an if at this point. It is getting bigger, and more people are hearing about us. Um, and that is keeping our eye on the ball, making sure everybody that comes to this show has a great time, making sure people connect with each other. I mean, we consider ourselves your host. And the board of directors are people that give hundreds of hours of year of the year to putting this show on. And Martin gives part of every day of the year. Uh, to put in the show on. Oh, I know um, because because I'll start getting emails from him in like August yeah. about, hey man, <laughs> what's your what's your plan for March? Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm and like, man, I don't even have Dragon Con set yet. <laughs> Mar- and March comes up quick, brother. I don't see how you fit us both in. Dragon Con's a monster. It's, uh, I mean. I do as much as I can. I want to go yeah. anywhere that will give me a microphone. I will show up. Well, I'll tell you what. Pat Henry that uh, started uh, Dragon Con, he's, he's one of my heroes in showbiz. Yeah. You know, yeah. because he has seen everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, you're and, not kidding, uh, man. And has come out the other side still this guy who wants people to have a good time. And it's, it's amazing. And keeping that kind of ethos with our show is, is preeminent in all of mine and the board of directors' eyes. You know. Well, and that's what's important about you guys is you say board of directors. And what we're talking about is a bunch of guys who are going to be walking around that convention, looking at toys, talking to people, hanging out. You guys aren't sitting in like a room somewhere counting money. No. You're, no. you're out on the floor interacting with everyone well uh, it's it's the double-edged sword you got to run a show but man the part we love is getting out there and talking to all these people and asking them what they dig what so do you dig if you, you know? have one tip to close this thing out for the listeners going to joe lanta and the great atlanta toy convention what what one piece of advice would you give stick your hand out and meet somebody there you go man commune with your brothers and sisters because there's not somebody there that doesn't want to know you. And that is the most important thing you can take away from our show. If you don't buy a thing in a dealer's room, and I advocate that you buy a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but no matter what you get as far as an artifact goes, if you can meet somebody, you've taken the biggest treasure from Joanna that you can take. Well, it's and that's two, two instances of that I want to mention. The first one is uh, Ryan Lansden, who I mentioned before. Uh, that I met at Jolanta a couple of years ago, uh, bought an Inhumanoids figure from him, got to talking, and then the next year, he's there again, bought something else, got to talking a little bit more, and now, you know, I've talked to the guy online, I've seen his custom work, and then uh, the other one is Rad Ranger, who I met in person for the first time a couple of years ago at Jolanta. I haven't met him yet, but he and Ricky are really good friends. You, you will meet him this year, for sure. Absolutely. 
Well, man, I want to tell the listeners, go to joelanta.org, check out all the panels, check out the rock and roll that's going to be there, uh, and just uh, go find out where the location is. The Marriott, It's still the Marriott Century Center, correct? Yes, absolutely. Marriott Century Center, Claremont Road, and I-85. Great location. So you should be easy to get in and out of. Free parking. Beautiful atrium. We have a parachute drop on Friday night that is not to be missed. It is legendary. And a lobby swap. So, you know, you don't have to be a commander to do either one of those events. You can come in and hang out. And um, and we're going to have a phenomenal time, and we want everybody to join us because you guys are the treasure of the show for us. Well, buddy, thank you so much for coming on the show, for well, talking toys. Well, thanks for toys. letting me be a long-winded Ooh, sometimes. No, man, you, that makes my job easy. I love it. If I can sit here and listen to somebody interesting for an hour, that makes my day, man. Hey, you're lucky you didn't get me on Art Jag. We're all we're all good. Hey, we'll do uh, that. Anybody who wants to can friend me on Facebook, uh, Buddy Fenethy, F-I-N-E-T-H-Y, uh, or you can check out my uh, artwork and, and design work on Arcadis Design uh, on Facebook as well. And next time we have you on, we'll talk about art, and we'll do a special three-hour episode. Oh, the traumas of art. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Buddy, thank you so much for thank coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll me see you next weekend. We'll see you next weekend, sir. Look Later, forward man. To it. All right, bye. You know, as I was listening back through that episode for editing and production purposes, I was thinking to myself... You guys couldn't have changed it to Toy Lanta a little sooner, so I didn't have to say Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention 15 times in the interview. I'm just kidding a little bit. Seriously, you guys, go to Toy Lanta next weekend, March 11th and 12th, with the parachute drop on the 10th at the Marriott Century Center in Atlanta. Go to joelanta.org for all the details, and you'll notice... In the pre-show, I did not mention going to Amazon on NeedlessThingsSite.com and clicking on that Amazon link to buy your stuff. And I really should have because this is going to get a wider audience than, or, or at least a different audience than some episodes of the show because of its connection to Toylanta. So, hey, if you're new, you can go to NeedlessThingsSite.com, go to the big Amazon box and buy some stuff to help out the show or go to support, well not or, and do both. Also, go to supportphantom.com and find out what kind of neat-o bonuses you can get for supporting Needless Things uh, and my activities at conventions and various other things. Uh, it, it all goes to pay for the website, to pay for the podcast, to pay for my travels and activities at conventions. Uh, this is not, you guys are not supplementing my toy budget or anything like that. This is all for, everything from supportphantom.com is strictly for business purposes. Uh, and, and granted, I, I do review toys on the site, so I guess that could be business, but I don't know. That feel that would feel weird to me, and uh, nothing, nothing here should feel weird. Everything should feel good. Everything should be fun. No weirdness. You know why? Because I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vic's employee. And of course, it's at needlessthingssite.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh.